Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to Mama Chat featuring the Mamacrats, Julie Piper and lawyer mama Stephanie Emil Nelson. I'm Donna Schwartz-Mills, also known as SoCal Mom. We were hoping to do this week's show without even mentioning the words Sarah Palin, but there's a new meme out there that's really hit the nerve. The idea that the former Alaskan governor and reality show queen represents a new kind of enlightened feminist. Julie, I know you've got a lot to say about this. I do. It first started when I read an article in The Atlantic by Elizabeth Wurzel titled Sarah Palin Riot Girl. And uh, basically, I was just absolutely without words after finishing reading that article. I couldn't find a way to encapsulate my opinion about this entire premise that the Democrats need a hot, sexy mama out there leading our party the way the Republicans have Sarah Palin. Uh, Then I read on the Issues magazines, The Rise of Enlightened Sexism by Susan J. Douglas, who also wrote a book. And suddenly, I had the words and the phrase, enlightened sexism, and it completely brought into context exactly how I felt about this idea that we need sex appeal to be able to achieve and accomplish, especially in the political arena. Um, When I had a discussion on my Facebook page, uh, some of the best comments that I got, um, and there were quite a few really good comments, but Anita Jackson, a mom of two little girls living in a mid-sized suburb who works from home for a fabulous online nonprofit, put forward a couple of concepts that I thought were really worth considering and discussing. The first is that the whole concept uh, rests on sort of that normative idea of beauty and the fact that it's very uh, centered on one race and particular style and look. And uh, the other comment was about how young women working in the Democratic Party go along with this uh, Elizabeth Wurtel idea. So what I wanted to do is really quickly just put some context here and uh, quote Elizabeth Wurtel from her article, Sarah Palin, Riot Girl. She says, as a liberal feminist, it drives me absolutely bonkers that Palin is the most visible working mother and female politician in America, that she is the best exemplar of a woman with an equal marriage, that she has put up with less crap from fewer men than those of us who have read the second sex. And uh, that's, That's a part of her opening paragraph. Later in the article, she says, the Democrats are total morons for not finding their own hot mama before the Republicans did so first. Or maybe I should have left off the qualifiers and called it straight. The Democrats are just plain morons, at least where women are concerned. She goes on later in that same article to say there are no Democratic bonds, no giant girls, us by the politics, women in the world. The way for she talks about successful women in the Democratic Party, but none of them are feminine wild. And she says that none of them have played up their sexual She goes on to say that we absolutely need to do that. And then she uh, goes on to say that uh, Sarah Palin is a sexy librarian, kind of a MILF, kind of crazy, and altogether does what she wants to do. And she says uh, that we need to find, even though Sarah Palin's not very bright, not very thoughtful, and not very qualified to run a country or a state, uh, she says, nevertheless, the Democrats need to find someone who can emulate this kind of person to to get that attention. I I, I read that, and, and I just, I can't even begin to tell you 
how much I absolutely disagreed with that. Uh, I, I just, I don't think that that's the right way to go. And until I read On the Issues magazine, The Rise of Enlightened Sexism by Susan Douglas, I, I didn't have a way to say it. But let me quote Susan Douglas, what she says. Millions of young women, the girl power generation, have been told that they can do or be anything, yet they also believe their most important task is to be slim, hot, and non-threatening to men. Once they get out into the workforce, though, they learn that there is still pay discrimination in flexible workplaces, women slotted into low-paying, dead-end jobs more often than men, and a glass ceiling in so many lines of work. At the same time, these young women get the message loud and clear that the absolute last thing they should embrace is feminism. In fact, she says that feminism has become the ideological equivalent of anthrax. She wanted to explore how that happened and looking through going back to the 90s, basically kind of the uh, concept that media has represented women as more successful than they actually are. And that basically what the media have been giving us over the past 15 years are fantasies of power. These fantasies assure girls and women repeatedly that women's liberation is all set, she says, and that we are stronger, more successful, more sexually in control, more fearless, and more held in awe than we actually are. Towards the end of the article, she talks about a new brand of sexism, which she's calling enlightened sexism a force which has gained considerable momentum since the early and mid-1990s. Enlightened sexism insists that women have made plenty of progress because of feminism. Indeed, full equality has allegedly been achieved, so it's now okay, even amusing, to resurrect sexist stereotypes of girls and women. After all, these images can't undermine women at this late date, right? But she goes on to say that this is a push-pull force at work on women. She says, the war between embedded feminism and enlightened sexism gives with one hand and takes away with another. It's a powerful choke leash letting women venture out, offering us fantasies of power, control, and love, then pulling us back in. The only way women today can straddle all of this is to be superwomen. So when I sat down and thought about it, thought about this idea of embedded feminism at a push-pull war with enlightened sexism, and the call for the Democratic Party, which is traditionally the party that you know, promotes and supports issues uh, for women, such as fair pay, even though they didn't manage to pull it off most recently, I started wondering to myself, as these young women and these young feminists or these young women who think of themselves as not needing feminism are become uh, more in leadership roles, where are we going to end up politically and with our policies? And so I wanted to just give Anita the chance to talk a little bit about the idea from the Wurzel article and talking to one of her friends who's in the political world and, and ask you, Anita, what do you think about the Wurzel line that the Democratic Party and progressive women need a progressive Palin? Mm. <laughs> you know, it. I, I think it really just struck a nerve when I read in the Wurzel article, there are no democratic blondes, no riot girls <laughs> on the progressive side of politics, no fun and fabulous women in the liberal scene who could pave the way for a Palin. You know, to me, that there are so many things wrong <laughs> with that statement. You know, first of all, Besides the, the fact idea, it's not true. 
Right, right. Well, number one, number one, there are. I mean, I could, you know, name off the top of my head so many fabulous, fun, fabulous women who are doing the good work, uh, you know, for progressive politics, and you know, telling the truth, speaking truth to power about what women and girls and you know, women who are mothers and grandmothers and aunts are really going through, you know, in their home lives and in the workplace. Um, and in politics, no less. Um, so it just, like, I had to stop and reread that sentence three or four times to make sure she was saying what I thought she was saying, um, which is absolutely not true. Um, you know, it, and when I when I shared that sentence with this, this Facebook friend of mine, and she wrote back and she was like, well, you know, that maybe she's got a point. Maybe we need to do a better job of, you know, putting forward somebody that, you know, people want to watch. Like, you know, let, I, I want to do that. I, I think it's important that we have more leadership that uh, is appealing in that way. Y- you know, I um, I had to stop and think, you know, what is it with our society today that we want to listen to someone or, you know, pay attention to someone, you know, for how attractive they are, how blonde they are, you know, but how about how honest they are? Are they telling us the truth about, you know, the everyday experience of moms out there? Are they talking about the wage discrimination, the fact that, you know, women earn 90 cents to a man's dollar still and mothers earn 73 cents? You know, this is not trivial. Something like 80, upwards of 80% of all American women become moms by the time they're 44 years old. So, you know, we're not talking about a special interest group or, you know, a group that um, most people can't relate to. Um, You know, these are experiences, motherhood and caretaking. Even if you never have children, you're going to end up most likely taking care of elderly parents or, you know, nieces and nephews or sisters and brothers. And nobody's talking about the huge disconnect that we have in the political arena between what we think women do and the reality um, at home and the everyday work life of what women actually do. This is what Sarah Palin is not getting to me. For all her talk of mama grizzlies and, you know, oh, moms just know when something is wrong, you know, yeah, okay, let Let's have a discussion about that then. Let's not leave it at mom just kind of have an instinct like grizzly bears. You know, let's talk about what are we sensing that's wrong. Oh, is it the pay discrimination? Is it the fact that child care is as much or more than college tuition? You know, is it the fact that we've got, you know, lots of women and moms working out there in low-wage positions and have no paid sick days? Um, You know, how are we supposed to reconcile our policies with the way that we actually are struggling to make ends meet. Women in politics today need to be addressing these issues, and not just the women in politics. Let me back up. Men in politics need to be addressing them too. You know, we need to make sure that men are equally accountable to talk about these and to, you know, provide solutions when they're in political leadership. I think that's an interesting point that men and women do because it it goes to the whole idea and concept that I think all of us probably on this call agree with. 
so many of the things that you listed, Anita, aren't women's issues. They're family issues. They're people issues. They're men and women issues. Um, when women get fair pay and equal pay, it benefits the additional people in their life, whether it's a life partner or a husband, um, a relative, depending on them for care. It's something that we all need to invest in. It's not just a women's issue. Um, and child care, same sort of thing. It's not just, it's a societal issue. You know, when you watch the news and you see about children in jeopardy and trouble, it's something that affects all of us in society. So, um, I think that what we're kind of working from here is a little bit of a patriarchal construct, and that is identifying some of these things as women's issues when they're really, you know, all of us issues. But I think also it's the patriarchal construct of we liked uh, certain politicians in the past, you know, like Bill Clinton and George W. Bush because of their charisma. No one talked about their sex appeal or their blondness or their, you know, physical attractiveness because I don't think anybody would really call them you know they're 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 pleasing enough, but people focused on their charisma, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's a lot of the appeal that they focus on. But when we're back to talking about women, we're back to talking about how they look, and how they look being what appeals versus what they're talking about. I think Elizabeth Wurzel completely missed the boat on this, not only because she says it doesn't matter. She says that that. Um, she says she speaks in spoonerisms, talking about Sarah Palin. She speaks in spoonerisms. She raises wretched children. She's a quitter. She's a repudiator. She shoots moves and beats halibut. She has a dumb accent that doesn't have the charm of Charleston. Really, she's just a lot of quirks. But it doesn't matter. It will never matter, and I bet it never has mattered because Sarah Palin is hot. And, you know, I think she misses the boat. And, and you know, everybody chime in and let me know what you think about this because I don't think it's just that she's good-looking. She's really, you know, yes, she's an attractive lady, but she's not just good-looking. I think she's saying things that appeal to a lot of people, and it doesn't mean I agree with her in any way, shape, or form, but she's talking to people on their level, and that's appealing to them. I don't think it's exclusive to how she looks. Do you, Do you guys think that that's true? Yeah, I think you're right, Julie. It's it's so much more than, than how she looks, and I think you're right. I think it's charisma more than being attractive. I mean, there are plenty of women, I think, in the Democratic Party who are just as attractive as Sarah Palin, but, you know, they don't have that knack or the the master of the sound bite in the way that, that Sarah Palin does. She just has this knack of getting to people's fears and twisting things, and and I, I don't think that it's ignorance. I really do think that it's deliberate on her part. She just this is her talent, and she's using it. And there's no substance behind there. But um, I think you're definitely right that it's it's not just what she looks like. It's so much more than that. But why is the conversation centered so much on how she looks and that being the sole basis of her appeal versus? her actually having a charisma and an ability to meet people where they're at and appeal to them there. Well, we shouldn't be surprised at this, though. I mean, remember, this is the media that focused on, you know, Hillary Clinton and her her haircut. Uh, I mean, it's always been that for women. And I think by sitting here and, and talking about the actual issues, instead of, um, you know, just focusing on what she looks like or whether we have a a Democratic version who's just as hot as Sarah Palin, that we start to change that conversation. Well, except that to get people's attention, I mean, we live in a marketing society, 
and you have to have the message in an attractive package. And I think that's what what the problem is. You know, when we sit here talking about feminist values, you know, you've got a whole new generation of women that yawn. We might have to repackage the message. And I think that we need to repackage it. But, you know, thinking about some of our greatest leaders, you know, going back, I mean, how how would, you know, the turning our voter system into a reality TV show popularity contest that requires you to be able to be the sing, dance, act, and look gorgeous package, I mean, how would that work for Jay Rockefeller, Robert Byrd, FDR, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt, um, you know, how how would, you know, Margaret Thatcher going going abroad – you know, what are we going to create as a leader if we require people to be gorgeous? You know, let's think about it. It's always been the America. This is not new. People like JFK because he was charismatic, but also they did talk about how good-looking he and his wife were. So that's, yeah. that's been an appeal thing. But the same can't be said for Lyndon Baines Johnson or Lady Bird Johnson, you know, it's it's something that's not particularly new to our consciousness, and, and human beings do like aesthetically pleasing. But how can we stop? You know, and I want to turn this over to Anita really quickly because you spoke to your friends who said maybe we do need. Um, do you do you have like an age context for that person, and and do you think that there's a way that we can talk to these younger women uh, and help them understand that it really can't be that we need them on the low road, that we really need to get back up to the high road and repackage it, like Donna was saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not sure exactly of her age, but I, I, I imagine she's about my age. She's, you know, probably late 20s, early 30s. And um, it's interesting to me because it it seems to me that there are a couple of different, you know, threads to the conversation here. Um, when I think about um, the work that I do, um, and I'll, I'll name with Moms Rising, um, you know, this is an organization that's been really effective at getting um, the the message of what it's really like every day for moms out there to, straight to politicians. And it's on the strength of, you know, people's real-life experiences that we've been able to get in the door and, you know, talk to legislators and hopefully move a couple of votes in support of um, policies that are good for women and good for families and good for men, you know, things that are just better for families and, you know, better for the workplace. But I think in terms of – so when we talk about speaking to politicians – you know, having that authentic voice, I think, is what's really important. Showing politicians that, you know, not the sound bite and maybe not the perfectly beautiful, polished package, but, you know, the true stories, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, um, to get the point across saying, like, this is what voters need and this is who we are. But when, it's, when we're talking about, you know, now how do we take those stories and sell them to the media, <laughs> you know, how do we... Um, catapult the the voice of an everyday mom into the public sphere. That is a different question. You know, when you're talking about public consumption um, of everyday stories, it's. It, I, I think there is something to needing to repackage it for you know the cable news network or for you know the big three or um, and. and 
so I'm not sure if um you know if there's a way to reconcile that um unless we find somebody in the mainstream media who can represent you know everyday moms in the mainstream media um and you know and be heard and be listened to and you know there's so many things that go into that right who gets listened to who gets their faces on in the media you know who do we consider beautiful and worthy of listening to um i think that's a different conversation and equally important um but the fact is is that we need to be having it in both places both on the legislative political level with and among political leaders um and in the mainstream and then when you have these crossover people like Sarah Palin who you know have dipped their toe in the waters of politics and you know are on every you know talking head show making the rounds every weekend and you know every weeknight um it does leave a vacuum on the side of progressive politics. Um, and it's a really difficult question to reconcile. I think for when we're talking about young feminists um, and people like myself and my friend who are trying to figure out how we tell our story, what I would like to see, and I think, you know, even though she kind of agreed with the Wurzel article, I think I could make an argument to her. I think what we really want to see is a young woman or, you know, of any age, really, who's just really confident. You know, she's like, yeah, I I haven't gotten the plastic surgery. I haven't gotten my, my hair straightened. And I'm just going to be really straight up with you about, uh, you know, what it's like for me. And, you know, I'm going to tell your story. I'm going to tell my story. And I'm going to be really uh, engaging and approachable and yet still honest. You know, I think we're looking for leaders who are like that, um, people who are uh, fearless and fun and um, honest and, you know, have have that quality that you can see, um, that leadership quality while still being able to connect to us. Um and again, I think they're out there, and I think it's just a matter of, you know, being persistent. The way Sarah Palin is persistent, you know, she will wear you down. You will not be able to open a magazine or turn on the television without seeing her. That's because she's out there. You know, she is pounding the pavement. And I think all we have to do is find a couple of um, women on our side who uh, who are willing to make that investment and and support them. I think it's important to mention Kirsten Gillibrand right now because yeah. Oh, yeah. I I mean, first off, I want to I mean, here's my personal theory. Um and I call it the much ado about nothing theory. And um Sarah Palin fits right into that and it's not because I think she's nothing. I don't want to be derogatory at all. It's because I think there is a disconnect between what is actually happening on a day-to-day basis in the real world and what the media obsesses about and I think that what happens is the media gets itself into an obsession rut and it doesn't know how to get itself out I think uh, part we've had big budget cuts and funding cuts to the media they're working to do more with less Um, the demand on media is huge 
And, I and think don't forget people are not consolidation of media, too. That's right. Consolidation of media. We just don't have... We just don't have the media that we once did. It's a completely new ball game, and the problem with it is then we end up with a, a little bit of a, a homogenous kind of approach to media, and, and that's what I think creates these obsession ruts. They get mm-hmm. to talking about Sarah Palin, and it's their go-to topic. I think she's pounding the pavement hard, but I don't think she's pounding it necessarily any harder than anyone else. It's just a story the media likes to talk about. And there's always, you know, I work in communications and public relations, I admit, and we are always looking for what's the thing that's going to make them bite and never let go of your line. And and it's it's almost more like an art than a science, and it's a little bit of magic. You know, when we bring up someone like Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, here is someone who is really not just pounding the pavement. She is really getting out there and doing a lot of media as much as she possibly can. But she's also going to people where they are, town hall meetings, things like that. But she is working really hard in her job as a senator, too. She just, for some reason, has not captured the media soundbite attention. I I don't – and, you know, and that's that's a challenging thing. But the problem is when you hear young women like Elizabeth Wurzel or other people out there say, you know, there's just not somebody, there's just not a riot girl, there's just not someone fun and fabulous, um, there there are actually, they're just mm-hmm. not being talked about in the media. And I, and I think that that's that obsession rut, and it's the disconnect between what's happening in the real world and us being able to critically think through the story the media is telling us and what we know is happening otherwise. You know what I'm well, saying? Here's, here's a question. Um, you know, when we were talking, you were talking about um, Kirsten Gillibrand and, and how she doesn't have that sort of soundbite thing that uh, Sarah Palin has going on. But, I mean, let's face it, Sarah Palin is attractive. She's got charisma. She's got all of these things. But one of the reasons she gets so much attention is because she's constantly saying controversial things or attacking others, you know, like going after the first lady, and, you know, we can get into that later. But do we need to stoop to that level to get the same sort of attention that Sarah Palin gets? That's a good question. I'd also like to point out... (laughs) I'd also like to point out that, you know, Kirsten Gillibrand has a full-time job as a legislator. Sarah Palin's full-time job is promoting Sarah Palin. She Mm -hmm. doesn't have the burden of governing right now. So she's able to put a lot of energy into going rogue big time. Good point. Good point. She doesn't have to worry about an electorate. That's right. She doesn't have to represent anyone other than herself. And she's very good at it. Yeah. She is very good at it. And she's, you know, now she's got her television show on the Learning Channel. And it's, it's you know, I, I hear from people in Alaska that they're frustrated, that they don't feel like it portrays an accurate uh, picture of Alaska. And they don't appreciate that she is not only defining the narrative for women and defining the narrative for conservative women, but they're frustrated because she's now defining the narrative for Alaska, and they don't feel like it's an accurate representation on on any front. And I think that's interesting to me um, to hear that perspective from people who say, actually, she says she speaks for me, but she's not. And I, I wonder how we can get those voices amplified as well. It's, you know, the thing is, is that Sarah Palin's Alaska is an entertainment show. 
you know, it, it's political propaganda, but it's an entertainment show. And we are, you know, the media is giving us entertainment. I mean, even the top-rated TV shows, Fox News, people say they watch it because it's entertaining. And so I think that's that's the shift where you've got to sugarcoat the seriousness these days because I don't think the electorate has the attention span. I mean, I I don't like to say we have to talk down, but I think we do have to sugarcoat things, package things. I think it's the reality we live in. I mean, I'm looking at, you know, Julie earlier made mention of LBJ, didn't need to have the charisma factor, didn't have to look good to be elected president. But he had the bulk of his career before television. I mean, I, I look at it akin to the arrival of MTV. In the 80s, we used to go see this woman named Mavis Davis who was singing around in clubs in L.A., and you had all these record company execs flocking to hear Mavis sing, but nobody would sign her to a deal. And the reason why, one of them told me, she won't look good on MTV. You know, prior to MTV, you have Aretha Franklin. After MTV, you have Madonna. And I think that's what we've got in politics now, too. So what's the next step? Where do we, where do we go? I mean, what's post-Madonna? Lady Gaga? <laughs> <laughs> you think we can get Kirsten Gillibrand to put on a meek dress? Oh, you know what? I don't want her to. I I hear what you're saying, Donna, and in a way, it's it's you know I I hear it as a valid point. In the same way, I understand what Elizabeth Wurzel is really trying to say. I I think she's trying to make a point. We have got to get ahead of this, folks, and and mm-hmm. and I hear that, and it's a valid point. I I just I I, I every fiber of my being rebels at the idea of sinking down to that level. And, and I, I don't even care how controversial that is. I believe it is sinking down to that level. I, I, I think that Sarah Palin is, is the worst thing that's happened for conservative women. I really do. I know they think she's wonderful, and I know so many of them just feel like, yay, um, you know, I live down here in the deep red red, and people drive around with I Heart Sarah Palin bumper stickers all over the place. I think she's the worst thing to happen for women. I think she's the worst thing to happen for conservative women, and I wish women understood that. I wish people understood that. I don't think the Democratic Party has failed women per se. I think they are right now because they are running around letting the tail lead them. They're, they're dogs chasing their tail. They're letting the tail wag the dog. They're not trying to drive the narrative themselves. They're not trying to say, you know what, fine, let the Republican Party have Sarah Palin. Let that be their little conservative um, icon. We aren't doing that. We know that what the people need is what Anita was saying. We need this authenticity. We need this strong, confident, and we're going to stand behind it. What the Democratic Party has failed to do is really get behind and promote its superstars like Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. I have not seen that. I think back to Ohio. I think back to Jennifer Bruner, and I think about what happened in her race and the fact that the party did not back her but, in fact, backed her male opponent, and she ended up, it cost her. 
it cost her the primary. And I don't see the party elevating its women. And that's where the party is failing, and that's where the party is going to continue to fail. Strategically, what they need to do is get behind the progressive women. They need to do it more. They need to do it better. If they want charisma and charm and appeal, that's where their best options are. And the the bottom line to me is we've got to quit letting people like Sarah Palin drive our narrative. We don't need to find our own Palin. We need to find our best representative and let that speak for us. Um, we, we can't keep counterpointing the Republican point. It's poor strategy. It's defensive strategy. When you're constantly playing defense, you never get the chance to score. Anybody who watches sports knows that. You don't want to be on the defense side. That's not where you want to be. So I think that that's what needs to happen. We need to stop trying to do that. We need to quit chasing the tail and let that narrative become our own voice and stand up. Like Anita was saying, we need to find our own representative and let that person speak for us. And, I, you know, it happens that we have somebody who happens to be blonde and pretty, but she's not the only example. Let's think about some of the other women who are out there right now. Throw some names out for me, ladies. Put you on the spot. You know, who, who, can, we, who can we talk to? Well, I don't think it's something we're going to be able to solve in the next 30 minutes of the show, unfortunately. Um, Probably not. There, you know, it, it does make me think, though, of the the utility of having, you know, and I, I'm going to go back to the Sarah thing, I'm so sorry, but, you know, if, if there were... Um, a character, you know, a, a woman that we could lift up who had that, uh, you know, whatever it is that Elizabeth Wurzel is, um, you know, praising in her article, the charm and the charisma and the blonde and the, you know, someone who is very easy to swallow, you know, <laughs> like this mainstream media character that, you know, most of America feels safe around. The utility of having that person is that they could be a very good ally for someone uh who maybe isn't so pretty you know or isn't doesn't isn't that easy to swallow but is telling the truth um you know i think as a woman of woman of color i've seen this strategy work often actually where you have a white ally, you know, someone who's very friendly and easy, kind of laying the stage for you to come come forward and speak. Um, and I think we even saw this in Obama's run where, you know, he got uh, a lot of endorsements from some very familiar, very safe people like, uh, you know, Ted Kennedy and um, people like that who – I think really helped a lot of the electorate give Obama a second look and be like, okay, you know, maybe he's not just this person I can't relate to. Maybe I can take a listen. Um, I think people of color would probably be pretty familiar with this strategy. I mean, I guess it's somewhat of a bait and switch, but it's also a way of just introducing um, or laying the groundwork for uh, another leader to come through. If we could find an ally um, who's maybe already in the mainstream media, um, although Wurzel doesn't seem to think we already have one, but, you know, if we could find someone like that, um, I think it would it would be a great strategy for us. Well, that, uh, that certainly would be. Anita, we are past the halfway mark on the show. I know that you had 
other things to do, you're welcome to stick around. Um, I want to thank you for being here. Thank um, you so much. And uh, there, there's a lot of food for thought here. I know we're going to have this discussion many, many more times as we flounder about trying to find our way, I'm afraid. Um, I agree. Anyway. I hold hope. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, great. Anita, you have some, you've really made me think a lot, too. And um, what we've been talking about, I think, sort of segues into something else that we wanted to talk about, and that is um, the Republican war against women. I don't know if everyone here, well, I'm sure everyone on this call, but if all of our listeners um, read the article that was in, um, I believe, Truth Out um, from um, Tanya Malik called The Next Chapter in the Republican War Against Women. And if you're not familiar with who she is, um, back in the early 90s, she wrote a book called The Republican War Against Women. And this really personally spoke to me because I think I was maybe 22 or 23 when I read the book. And it was really sort of my first political awakening. In high school and college, I just really was not active. I was very apathetic politically. And I read this book and um, sort of systematically broke down the ways in which the, the GOP was, was sort of attacking the women's movement and trying to undermine it. And it was it was really eye-opening to me. So I, I was really interested to read her article, the next chapter in the Republican War Against Women. And in it, she sort of talks about this, you know, Sarah Palin um, idea, this, this Sarah Palin, you know, um, strategy that the GOP is embracing. You know, they're bringing women in because it, it sort of gives them a position of power. It gives them more authority. It's like they're they're taking the democratic tactics and, and undermining them in some way. And so I guess our, our question is, you know, how, how do we keep the GOP from sort of, you know, taking our issues away from us and twisting them? How do we do that? I know it's a big question. That really does kind of... Uh fall right in with what we've been talking about. It's a very frustrating, frustrating turn of events because they are getting better at packaging a perverted version of our message than we are in delivering the message. Yes, exactly. I think that's the problem. <laughs> well, and Julie, I know you have a lot. You, you, all, you always have a lot to say on this particular topic, too. <clears throat> it, it, I yeah, it's hmm. It, I have so much to say. It, it's I, I I don't. The frustrating thing for me is the fact that I sit down here in the red zone, and a lot of the progressives, especially the progressives in power, don't necessarily sit in red zones. So the problem is again that disconnect between perception and reality that I was talking about with the media, and the perception is that. Um, you know, of course, if women understood, they wouldn't be behind this. And, of course, if people, you know, had better information or knew the facts and, you know, women won't be behind this. But the truth of the matter is a lot of conservative women really do believe in this. Um, there's take, – take the choice platform. Is, is that an okay point of discussion here for a second? Sure. sure. That's a good one. Okay. Um, 
I'll, just because a woman's a woman doesn't mean she believes in choice. It, it, it just doesn't. And I think to to divide this along gender and sex lines is really not an accurate place to go. And and this is where I keep saying we need to quit identifying certain things as women's issues, and we need to quit thinking that it's all girls together now kinds of things, and we need to quit thinking that you know, that that we can think of it like this and that, you know, we can count on our sisters in arms and that sort of thing to to ally with us. What we need to do is focus on it as a progressive versus a conservative issue. And we need to understand that we need to get everybody on board who is on the progressive side and who wants to keep certain things like choice an individual decision you know, the the thing I keep saying about the GOP versus the Democrat is that both are big spenders. We can't differentiate either major political party um, because uh, we call them big spenders. Um, you know, on the Democrat side, that's not accurate. The Republicans are big spenders. The Democrats are big spenders. The differentiation lies in what they spend on. And the differentiation in morality is also, you know, in family values. You you can't say one or the other is a moral party or a family values party either. The differentiation, again, is where they fall on the side of the issues that are within that area. And the um, the area of choice is on the Democrat side, you know, even some Democrats don't believe in abortion but they don't believe necessarily in legislating that moral choice for you. And so that's, that's what I think we need to distinguish for people. We need to make people understand this is not a family value alignment, okay? You're not being a family values voter just by voting Republican. What you're being is uh, I believe in the party and the government's right to legislate my moral choices. And I think if people understood that, maybe I'm naive. I think that it would help. You know what I mean? And I think that it would help some women understand. You're not just being a good family value advocate because you vote for Republican. What you're saying is this party has the right, if it gets into power, to legislate my decisions for me. Does that make I sense? That. that totally makes sense to me, Julie. I guess the, the question is how do we, you know, package that into nice little Sarah Palin sound bites? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know because anything I say now is going to to probably um, reinforce the elite liberal stereotype. <laughs> uh, we're already there. Hold you on, know, you just have to latte. find a way to tweet it. You know, little 140 characters. I right. know. I. I, I think I, I think it goes back to the Democrat strategy. We have got to quit chasing the tail. It just we can't keep doing that. We can't keep responding on the defense. Um, right. So how do we take well, control? Right. And like in the last election, we we lost you know a lot of white women. They were gravitating towards the GOP in the last election, which I think is one point that Tanya Millick makes in her article. So how do we how do we keep the GOP from from using this twisted version of feminism to attract white women. I mean, how how do we stop that? Is it just being rational, like, you know, like Julie says, and explaining that, you know, these are, are really what this, this party stands for and this is really what this party stands for? Or we 
I think we've been doing that till we're blue in the face. Nobody's listening. Yeah, I know. That, that's, that's it's, it's the way it. we're saying it. It's the way we're yeah. saying it. We can't stand up and say, we can't stand up and say a woman has the right to choose. That hasn't resonated. It's not working. It's it's just it's not working. We need to stand up and instead say the government doesn't have a right to tell me what to do. I mean, and isn't that what we the can, party is saying? And and look at how that party has resonated. The government doesn't have the right to tell me what to do. Every single person who goes and votes for the Republicans and says, I'm a single-issue voter and I'm voting because the Republicans are against abortion, you are right away giving the government the right to dictate your health choice. I find it richly ironic that you don't believe in health care reform, but you believe the government has the right to tell you what to do reproductively. It, it, it doesn't logically mesh up in my mind. So that's telling me we're not framing the things correctly. How do we do it? I don't know. If I did, we I'm need a viral sure. video. We <laughs> just need to. We need to have a flash mob. And uh, I, I'm half serious. I mean, look at what happened when this guy had his video when the TSA was patting him down. He says, "Don't touch my junk," and that dominated the news cycle all last week. Dominated it. No, nothing else was there. We need to create something, our own don't touch my junk, about our reproductive system. Oh, that's a good one, Donna. Anita um, is still on. And, Anita, what Ooh. do you think? Do you have an idea of a, of a strategy here or a topic? <laughs> well, um, you know, I'm, I'm, when you said viral video, it uh, sparked something for me because um, the past couple of years, uh, you know, Moms Rising has done the Mother of the Year video, which has gone viral both times. Um, and I was just thinking about videos like that. And, you know, you must remember the old Spice Guy commercial that went viral. Oh, yeah. Love um, it. And, right, right. You know, and using social media um, to propagate a message really quickly. Um, you know, there are a couple of ways to do that. And one is to have you know, a really fun, compelling message, something that people are excited about and they want to pass on. And, um, you know, something that they feel like they can relate to. So with, like, the Mother of the Year video, it was just the fact that, you know, people could really uh, appreciate, um, you know, the fact that their name was sprinkled throughout the video, that it was customized for them, and that, you know, we were talking about, you know, their everyday experience. Like, congratulations, your mother of the year. How do you keep it all together with Cheerios in your briefcase? And, you know, and just kind mm-hmm. of making it fun and making it funny and making people feel like, oh, my goodness, they're talking to me and they're talking about my issues and I can talk back. You know, being able to engage in the dialogue, um, I think, made people want to talk. And I think that was the same thing with Old Spice Guy. You know, people felt like, oh, my goodness, he's talking back to me. You know, I have to tell all my friends about this. And with the don't touch my junk, you know, I think, again, you know, it was a message that people felt like, oh, this could be me. You know, I I can see myself in this position. This is really relevant to me, and this is being told in a funny way. You know, and then, you know, to whether, you know, the way things go viral is, you know, part luck and part hard work. So there's lots of elbow grease and behind the scenes and people picking it up and sharing it and, you know, with Don't Touch My Junk, major news outlets, you know, agreeing to <laughs> keep that on their websites. Um, you know, but I think if you have the luck and you have the elbow grease and you have the message, 
then you have the potential for something to go viral. Um, and again, also with Don't Touch My Junk, the other thing was it was headline news, you know, for days before and after that happened about the TSA body scanners and pat-downs. Um, so people were already talking about it. So I think that the key is to find um, a headline issue um, that resonates with people, that people are already talking about, and come up with that quick, fun, pithy, you know, going back to that whole meme of what are people going to listen to um, and get the conversation going that way. It, it, it is possible. So we just have to get creative and, you know, keep pumping out, um, you know, our creative ideas and and spinning them in a way that tells the story quickly. Steph, you brought this up because it was, you know, coming from your political awakening. What is the most recent thing that has really resonated with you and, and why? And is that something that can be expanded out? Hmm. <laughs> oh, gosh. I think it's been a while since I've been smacked with something that was just, you know, so amazing that, I, you know, I just honestly, I can't think of anything. What about all of you? Um, that's, I, I want to say, I, I was, I, I keep citing one source, and I, and I feel badly about that, but I was really inspired with how absolutely unequivocally supportive Kirsten Gillibrand was for Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Repeal. Yeah. I, I, she, unapologetically, she just was like, this is wrong. It needs to go away. I and 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 she continued to send out, um, hey, look at this in support of repealing it. Hey, look at you know, look at what the results of the survey were. You know, hey, th- this is you know, just without apology, without equivocation, she just said, boom, don't ask, don't tell, wrong, needs to go away. There there was no straddling a fence. It, I just I was very inspired because that is a potentially controversial position to take. And here she stands up and says, it's wrong. And people could easily say, but have you ever been in the military? And did you ever serve? And were you ever a vet? You know, what, what do you know from it? Um, but I didn't see a huge challenge to her personal position. I, I mean, that that I find is kind of interesting. I mean, what about you guys? Well, I mean, the nice thing about Gillibrand making that position now is that the country, most of the country has come around to that thinking. Don't the polls say that like 70% of the nation supports repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and the... Um this is a good time to mention the Pentagon's report on Don't Ask, Don't Tell just came out yesterday. And yes, even service members, even active duty service members, are the majority are in favor of repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Right. Everyone except John McCain and the Marines. Forty-eight <laughs> <laughs> 48% I, of the Marines. <laughs> okay. I, I'm kind of amazed that I'm kind of amazed that we have questions like this on the table. I, I just I've started a list of things that I can't even believe are discussion points and this is one of them. <laughs> Institutionalized discrimination. What's to discuss? It needs to stop. It just it needs to stop. You it, know, it does. some people it are does. gonna You're not so like right. it. And I think that the the Pentagon in some ways is making it more complicated than they should be. This is one of my like hot That's button what the topics. The Pentagon does. 
<laughs> yeah, I know. That's what they do. But, you know, for Don't Don't Tell, they were even surveying the spouses on their points of view. And I, I can't think, actually, I know that has never happened before. When, you know, when we're talking about an issue of national security here and military policy, when, when do they go to, you know, the wives and husbands and say, oh, what do you think? I mean, that just doesn't happen. So I think they've made it unnecessarily complicated. I mean, well, it was controversial when women started serving on, on ships and on submarines, and, you know, they dealt with it. There were problems. Of course, there always are. But the command deals harshly with people who sexually harass, and now it's not an issue. So I, I just don't see why it's so complicated. I saw very, very interesting commentary in today's Daily Beast by Linda Hirschman where she makes the point that um, people who serve in the military, that that's often a launching point for political careers. And she, she looks at the fact that there has never been, there's only been one bachelor president. I mean, the whole thing of not giving, not, of discriminating against gay people might be, you know, bottom line to keep them out of power. Well, you know, I, I, I haven't read the Linda Hirschman article. I'm not a huge fan of hers, but I will make one point. We have fewer people now in Congress in power politically who have served in the military than any time in the last 50 years. It's going down. So while people may join the military to start launch a political career and have done so in the past, our generation is not doing that. So I, that because have to we have an all-volunteer army? Yeah, she's just wrong. She's just wrong. Okay. That's, that's just not true. The numbers don't back that up. So, but okay. she's wrong about I would also say <laughs> I would also say it's not going to be a point that resonates. I mean, culturally, previously, you know, 50 years ago, you know, serving, and, and this is, wow, this is segue to my dream topic for next week. Um, Vivian uh, Greentree just put out an article that on This Emotional Life about the culture of serving and the culture of service, uh, and, and it's my dream to get her on and talk about that. But I, I think that we are no longer a, a nation that adheres to a culture of service, and so I don't know that it really resonates with the American voters to say, I served, I was in the military. Yeah. I'm not right. sure and that's the been, selling point it was. Right. There's been a lot of, of talk um, among the military community about the disconnect between civilian and military leaders now because there are fewer people serving in civilian leadership who have served in the military. And so there's, there's more of a cultural disconnect than there's ever been before. You know, the World War II generation, when they went off to Congress or the Senate, they had this shared history of, of service, and we just don't have that anymore. Oh, we also had a culture of shared sacrifice. You know, That's we yeah. paid for World War II with war bonds, you know. We exactly. initiated yeah, tax that, cuts for the wars we're in now. Right. That's an excellent point, Donna, because the entire nation sacrificed and experienced this and worried about their loved ones, and so we had that shared sort of cultural history. Now our shared cultural history is Real Housewives in New Jersey. Right. And, uh, you know, we keep pushing. We have, we have major economic problems, and yet the most important thing is keeping these tax cuts for everybody. It's just, it's just wrong. But that's my opinion. No, no. I think we're you're preaching to the choir here. 
<laughs> yeah. You know, we, we only have a few minutes left, you guys. Is there anything else in the news this week that we want to talk, touch upon briefly, pop culture-wise or anything? I really um, would advise people. Can, can I really quickly, a uh, super fast plug for Tom Ashbrook on point today, talking about climate change uh, with a focus on Hampton Roads and Norfolk in Virginia, uh, the rising sea and the sinking land. Um, it doesn't sound like a crazy story. It's something that's happening right now. And uh, Rear Admiral Titley is going to have a, a comment. He's, I think, the Navy's chief oceanographer. I, if I if I remember correctly, but anyway, just an absolutely fascinating story, a lot of really good details and facts and information, and people from the community talking about it. So I would say go check that out. We should and, put that link up on on the Momocrats uh, Facebook page for everyone too. Yeah, yeah, I'd like good to point. I'd like to see the link for that. Definitely. Yeah, and thank you for for pointing that out, Julie, because I live in Hampton Roads. So um, there is a lot of talk about climate change here, and it's kind of ironic that we're in the state, Virginia, with Ken Cuccinelli, who's bringing lawsuits against professors um, to try and get their, you know, try and debunk their research. According to Ken Cuccinelli, it's all in our imagination. Okay, I'm sure I'm sure the city of of Norfolk's uh, city councilwoman who is on point would appreciate her million dollars back that she just spent salvaging one street by raising it 18 inches and putting in new storm sewers. Yeah, I'm sure she would. Or we could we could just stake him out on some of the streets that are still on the map, by the way, in Virginia Beach that don't exist anymore because they've been taken over by the ocean. Wow, there you go. We can stake there him out in there. <laughs> Now there's your viral video. <laughs> that would be very popular. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have to thank Anita a ton for giving us time today. It's been such a pleasure to have you on, and I've enjoyed your perspective and thoughts so very much. Yeah, Anita, you got to be here for an entire hour. Thank you. I know. Well, thank you. My other conference call was canceled, so I had the pleasure of listening and speaking with you all and just had a great time. Thank you so much. Oh, we really appreciate it. I hope you'll come back. And uh, Julie Pipert, it is so great to be able to talk with you here. This yeah. um, this is nice. It's the first show we've done since we rebooted where it wasn't all Californians. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we got representation across the country this week. Yay. Yay. <laughs> the East Coast, the West Coast, and the Middle. Yeah, just goes to show you we're not just a bunch of California and New York liberals here at the Momocrats. <laughs> but we're all real Americans. <laughs> yes, this is true. I don't know, I live in state Virginia, so <laughs> I'm not sure. You're real. real You're as real as it gets, Steph. <laughs> Thank you both so much, and um, we look forward to seeing, hearing, listening next week. When Momocrats returns, 9 o'clock a.m. Pacific Time, here on Blog Talk Radio. Great. Thank you so much. Have a great day, everybody. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.